You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. Good morning again. If you find your Bibles, take them out as we get to spend some time in God's Word together this morning, looking at it, studying little shorter section this morning than what we've been doing, and then we'll go back into a long one next week. But uh, if you find Judges chapter 8, we are kind of in the middle of this chapter, coming towards the end of it. Judges chapter 8, verse 22 is where I'm going to read from, just a little bit. And uh, I want to show you Malachi's here this morning. Malachi, I got your picture right up here. This is Malachi, the only one I got last week, but it's a good one. This is Malachi's Skill is growing here, and if you can see the shadowy figures, that is, let me make sure I get their names right, Zeba and Zalmunna. That's Zeba and Zalmunna, Gideon, probably not Jether, I don't think that's Jether, that's Gideon. Yeah, Jether couldn't get it done, Gideon's son, but last week, those Midianite kings were gone. They were were done with, yeah, yeah, and that's kind of where we ended and where we're going to pick up as well uh, today. So, thank you, Malachi. Uh, Judges chapter 8, verse 22. I'm just going to read through 28. Now, there's a little bit more to Gideon's life than what I'm going to read, and that's going to segue into next week uh, where we go from there. But at least verse 22, let's start there in God's Word. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, and your son, and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw it in it, the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest forty years in the days of Gideon. Would you allow me to pray once more? Lord, I just agree with what Milt has already prayed for. Lord, would you just help us in your word right now to see you as we study? Are there certain things that we, we maybe don't understand from of old, and yet we thank you that your spirit and your word is sufficient for our needs and for what we need to know of you and of salvation in your son, Jesus Christ? Lord, would you just guide our study by that same spirit right now? Guide us. Lord, may as we bring the the burdens of this week and we bring this week and and our own lives to this text, Lord, help us to see it. What do you have to say to us through what you've already written? And we thank you for it. What a blessing we have before us. We ask your help. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, I am convinced based on God's Word that the enemy we face is much closer and pervasive than we think. Let me explain that a little bit. As we contemplate this in the year 2021, we have much without, and I'm thinking without the doors, much outside of, of where we're at, for us to shake our heads at and kind of wonder and look at what is going on. Thankfully, we're nearing the end of Pride Month, but that doesn't mean we're at the end of this celebration of sin, whether it be homosexuality or gossip or slander or lying or stealing or any other sin, but it won't go away. There's this celebration in our, not just America, but globally. A celeb- it seems it's an embracing of sin. We have a leadership in government that I would say does not fear the God who put them there. I don't think we see that at all. And these problems, like I said, they're not just national. These aren't just U.S. issues. It's worldwide. Sin is pervasive throughout the whole world. And then our own towns or towns. We make up a lot of towns in this group and neighborhoods. But I want you to consider in, in light of that, and that is definitely something, man, if you can come to prayer meet, let's pray about that in our country, in our nation. But consider that in light of Midian. I don't know if you see the connection, but do you remember how big Midian's army had been? We've done the math a lot of times. Remember, 135,000. That's what we get from the math. 135,000 men. And God, by this downsized army of 300, According to our text today, God had subdued them. Midian, look at verse 28. I'm kind of reading the last of it, right? So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. A great army had been subdued. The enemy, you might say, was subdued. But do you remember what, we, what I just read just a couple minutes ago in the aftermath of that victory, what happened to them? An ephod was made. We'll figure out what is an ephod. Try to think on that a little bit. And then all of Israel, including Gideon and his family, are ensnared by this. But we think, well, hadn't the enemy gone? Hadn't Midian been subdued? Hadn't they been taken care of? We should see this victory and life was good ever after. But... We don't see that. Things ought to be good, but they weren't. Israel ought to have worshipped God and said, whoa, you just did that? We'll worship you. You're our ruler. And it's just as quick as the victory, it's, it's like it's gone in the text. Maybe subtly over time, but we see it gone. I think it's interesting and worth noting. A threat remained even after all of Midian had been subdued because a threat of a corrupt heart would divert them and us away from the worship of God and His rule in their lives. There was a closer threat to them. Well, I want to look at the text with you and then think on that a little bit as we, as we uh, come out of the text. But coming back into the text, just like Malachi had shown, these kings of Midian have been slain. Remember Gideon? He grabbed their uh, crescent ornaments it talks about that were on the necks of the camels. And I don't know. I don't know if this was grabbing them that he had in mind. I'm going to make something terrible out of this. I don't, 
He might have just, they might have been spoils of war, but it could be. We don't, we don't know the heart, but later that, that action would be part of bearing fruit that would be a snare to Gideon and to the people. But that's where we left off. The battle is over, and there's kind of this, this beginning of an epilogue. What happened afterward? You know, the, the credits are rolling, you know, the kings have died, and then it's like those little words at the end of the movie, you know, and Gideon made Nephi, that kind of, that kind of idea, this epilogue going on. Well, look at, the, look at the first verse of what we have before us in verse 22 in our section. It says, Then the men of Israel, after this, this death of Zeba, Zalmunna, the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. A question here. Were they wrong were the people of Israel wrong to ask this of Gideon? Were they wrong to ask him to rule over them? And based on Gideon's comment that we're going to see in a moment in verse 23, I'm going, to, I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say they didn't have godly intentions here in their seeking Gideon to rule over them. I think rather than this, this opportunity to praise the God who had defeated Midian and who had done this, we, we see them just almost instantaneously looking to Gideon. You're the one that saved us. You, you rule over us. The ESV Study Bible says this. This request of, of them here flew directly in the face of the entire narrative up to this moment. It was God, not any human being, who was to get the credit for delivering His people. The government of Israel is what's called a theocracy. Theo, God, is theocracy. God is to be their king. And Gideon, why don't you rule over us? You see just the instantaneous where they're going. And they bypass acknowledging God as their true king. It, it doesn't mean they didn't acknowledge God at all. I, we just don't know. We're not, we don't have all of the fillers of what's going on. Perhaps in honoring Gideon, there was a way in which they were honoring Gideon as God's deliverer. I'm not sure. But without clarity, it's, we're just kind of left to conclude that rather than bow to Yahweh, they find Gideon and they seek to honor the creature, Romans language, or honor the creature rather than the creator, the one who had led them. There should be seemingly a praise service going on and we see, hey Gideon, you rule over us. Look at Gideon's response in verse 23. He says to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. The language here, it's, it's emphatic. It's, it's this, I certainly shall not rule, nor my son or grandson. The, the Lord should rule over you. That's what should happen. One writer says, Gideon's reply was a model of noble unselfishness, which recognized the essential fact that the nation had a king if they would only acknowledge him. Their king was Yahweh. They had a ruler. Deuteronomy 7 laid out this precedent, at least in this one place amongst others, to follow the rules of the Lord, for the Lord to rule. Here's what Deuteronomy 7 says, uh, 11 through 12. You shall therefore be careful... So this is Moses speaking to Israel before they enter the promised land. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. 
And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that He swore to your fathers. So Israel's first response, it would seem, ought to have been to look to the Lord who just gave them this victory. Look to Him. Look to His rules. Lord, what do we do? And follow Him. But then based on what we read in the following verses, you remember what we, I mean, what's going to happen next? We just read it. He's going to make an ephod, this thing. Figure that out. We may start to question, was Gideon being really, was he being honest here? The Lord shall rule? Because the next verse we see him making this, this thing, this ephod. So the statement is great. The Lord, He shall rule over you. But by verse 27, Gideon's made an ephod. And, and everybody's ensnared by this thing. There's some hints here that Gideon, though he said this, he acted in some kingly ruling type ways here. Here's what, and this isn't from this is just from from my my friend Ralph Davis, whom I, I, I quote often here, it helps think through some of this. Here's what he's he's got a few things from the from the text. Now this is a little bit later on, but one of the things looking at is Gideon does make this kind of this religious, this ephod. He makes this thing. There's some leadership even in the making of this. He looks to uh, all of Gideon's wives. We didn't read that. But verse um, 30, he's got 70 sons, for he had many wives, concubines. This is kind of the stuff of kings. Interestingly, we're going to look at next week, his son's name is Abimelech. Abimelech, you see it there, um, well, we'll see it next week. The Abi, or it's Avi, it's my father, and then the Melech of Abimelech, Melech is king. So Abi, or Avi, is my father, is king. An, an interesting name for Gideon to give his son, my father is king. Does that mean Gideon was kind of became this ruling type? Maybe. And then Abimelech, even as, he, as we get into next week, he refers to, to the people and says, do you want, do you want you know, my father's 70 sons to rule over you or do you want me to rule over you? And there's this ruling. And so it's difficult, it's hard. that You're going to notice a couple things today. I'm saying it's hard to be certain here. But I think Gideon, I, I think he truly meant it. He meant the Lord should rule. But we can't rule out Gideon's wayward heart, a heart susceptible to saying one thing and doing another, not unlike any of our own hearts. Behold our God, our King, how great Thou art. And then we're out going, I am pretty great. Or, or this loving other things. And we say one thing and then do. We're prone like this. Well, the other thing of Gideon fills verses 24 and 20 through 27. Let me just read um, 24 through 26 here. Look at what happens. This is after the Lord shall rule over you. Verse 24. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. They had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. They spread a cloak, and every man threw it in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was this 1,700 shekels of gold besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian and besides the collars that were around the necks of their 
camels. What Gideon asks for of them, he gets, he receives. Hey, I would like some of that. You got it. It's there. It's for him. 1,700 shekels worth. If you want to do the math, figure it out. You know, 41, 42 pounds, somewhere like that, of, of this, of, of rings, earrings. And that's beside all the other stuff that he, that he got, the spoils, the ornaments, the pendants, the purple garments, that sort of thing. So another question, having the rings, having these spoils of war, was that a bad thing? Was that, does that necessarily carry with it something inherently sinful? I would say no. There's, there's spoil from the war. Israel left Egypt. Remember, they had spoiled the Egyptians heading out. It's how that spoil is used. and We see a couple different uses in Exodus. You might remember the one bad use in Exodus 32. Aaron, bring me your rings of gold. And they used them in the building of the golden calf. And they did not worship God alone. They worshiped this, this, great, this image, this thing. So the rings were used in a poor way. But then by Exodus 35, the people are reformed and they contribute to the tabernacle. Guess what they contribute? It says, All who were of a willing heart brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. The spoil was not the problem. What would they do with it? And We can guess. What does, what does a heart that's prone to corruption, do? Well, let's look. Let's ask, what was Gideon's plan for the rings? And that's what we find in the first part of verse 27. Look at his plan. Because he's got a plan. And it's verse 27, the first part. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. Now, it's hard to be certain just exactly. Now we're going to ask, what, what is this what is this thing? What did he make? What's this ephod? In my study, it seems something akin to what, what the high priest would wear. I've got a picture here of it, if you can see that. I tried to widen it, but then it looked like the priest was... Whatever. Well, anyway, that's, uh, that's kind of the, the ephod, the garment. You've got the, the, the turban up top, but the, the ephod there, the, the colorful, they say the linen torso, is worn. You've got shoulder pieces, stones, 12 sons of Israel, this sort of thing. You kind of get an idea of what it, what it could be. It contained the Urim and the... It looks like Thuman. It's like two spices. It's not. The Urim and the... They're, they're, like, they're like... I think of them as like dice, like, you know, for discerning what the will of God was. And I can't... I'm sorry, I can't point where they're at on there. They're held in a pocket somewhere, maybe like that. But it was, it was used for discerning what is God, what's His directive, what does He want us to, to do. But like I said, it was supposed to be worn by the priest, the high priest. So why is Gideon, why is he making something here? It's really for the priest to wear, and it's for use where? In the sanctuary, in the tabernacle. We're in Ophrah. There's not a mention that the tabernacle and tent is there. What's he doing? It's it's hard, again, to be super clear. Here's two answers, and, and I think they're related. Answer one, what, Gideon, what are you doing with this ephod? It seemed, maybe he's making a holy garment to give him future answers in terms of what God's will would be. You remember the whole fleece episode? 
This is like fleece on steroids. We got the ephod now, maybe. I don't, I don't know if that's his way of, here's how we're going to figure out what God wants us to do. But then another idea along with that is perhaps Gideon here, he's setting up for himself and his people a sort of off-site sanctuary of the Lord. God's people, they were to gather to worship at, at that one place at the, the sanctuary, the tabernacle. At this point, it was in Shiloh, which is like miles, many miles to the south of here, kind of between where we're at and Jerusalem was, was this place called Shiloh. But maybe Gideon, instead of going there, maybe he thought he could kind of franchise the tabernacle and set it up where he, you know, kind of a mini tabernacle. You know, this is the sanctuary. We'll just meet with God here. Now, I don't have it uh, in my notes, but it was interesting because I think, I think Shiloh was in the region of Ephraim, which if you remember back, Ephraim wasn't, they weren't on great terms with Gideon. They were the ones like, why didn't you call us? And there was this conflict with them. Perhaps he didn't want to go through Ephraim to this tabernacle and meet with God there. It's just better if we do our own thing. And then you guys do that thing, and there's kind of this division in the land. But either way, the ephod was not Gideon's to make. One writer says this, His sin, therefore, consisted chiefly in his invading the prerogative of the Aaronic priesthood, the priesthood of Aaron. That, that was for the ephod. Drawing people then away from the people, from one, uh, drawing away the people from the one legitimate sanctuary. Kind of another place to worship. Well, no matter how we understand it, look at the clear result in verse 27, the rest of it. So, look at verse 27. Gideon made an ephod of it, put it in his city in Ophrah. And then we read these words. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. I want to give Gideon the benefit of the doubt, as we have maybe in more than one place. Maybe he set up this ephod. Maybe started off, this is a means, this will encourage the people toward the, lone, toward, toward the, the Lord alone who shall rule them. Maybe this will encourage them to do this if I set up this thing. But his error is departing from the plan that God had set forth for this ephod, for this place. It wasn't His to make. It was for the priest. It was for the sanctuary. Not, not each household. And over time, the prominence of this ephod seemed to take over the prominence of what? The rule of the Lord over the people. The thing became the object of worship and it replaced God. And it's likely, I can't be sure, likely I think Gideon, as this takes place, maybe small at first, but over time, Gideon sees himself as the king and the ruler. He's got the ephod anyway. It's in their town. And the rule of the Lord fades. This little phrase that we find here, Gideon made an ephod, led to the whoring after it of all Israel and Gideon, and his family. One leader, one little line of text, he made an ephod, and they're ensnared, and it affects the people, and the people are led astray. It, it's not even here yet that this ephod, this thing, this snare, 
is something of Baal. It's, we don't even see Baal mentioned. That's going to come. So we're like, well, where's Baal? Oh, he's coming. They're going to worship him too. But not yet. It's, the intentions may be good, but it was a little compromise from God's plan. And a little compromise derailed the rule of God amongst his people. And so we're back to then kind of this like jolting, it, it just seems like a different train of thought, but I, I don't think it is. Verse 28, you know, after this, they're whoring, Gideon, his family. Verse 28, so Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. They're subdued, these great and mighty Midianites. But it, it almost, after this, it just kind of seems like a mute point, like in, in, in light of Israel whoring after this ephod. The corrupt heart of Israel with their flawed leader, Gideon, has led them astray, and it's more dangerous to them than Midian ever was. The danger Israel faced here, it's the same danger we face in being wholly devoted to worship our God alone. Their hearts were easily led astray. Their hearts were corrupt. This isn't to discount Satan and his temptations or the, the drawing of the world to our hearts. There was something wrong in the heart. And that's what Scriptures point out. Just just a smattering of a few places. Genesis 8.21, after the flood, God makes a promise. He says, I'm going to never again curse the ground because of man. And He says this, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Isaiah speaks of those who make an idol of wood. They don't realize this idol of wood, it's just a block of wood, and we're going to bow down to that. They don't realize this. And he says this in Isaiah 44. He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? He sees it and his corrupt heart doesn't even say, this is a lie. This is a piece of wood. Why would I bow and worship this? Or familiar Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. Or Romans one twenty one talks about those futile in their thinking that their foolish hearts were darkened. The heart. The corrupt heart. I want to share with you one quote from Ralph Davis. And I want to share it, not because it fits exactly right here, but I think it leads us to where I want us to look and think as we think on this little episode here. He's commenting here on the failure of Gideon and, and really the failure of all godly leaders. Have any godly leaders failed you? I mean, you could just you could probably name them in this past year even, or authors or whatever. They fail us. But I want to tie it then, just coming out of it into the corruption of our own hearts. Here, here's what he says to that and kind of looking at Gideon. He says the The shadow of inconsistency and of disappointment frequently hangs over God's servants. I mean, it's not just our day. You go back and past, you look at, man, they were so so good and they were thinking this way, but there's this, this flaw in them, that idea, that inconsistency. He says here, Gideon was hardly a rare exception. 
This is not to excuse the sins or errors of the leaders of God's people, but let it temper our expectations. I love this word. Let it cushion our despair. I think, I mean, Ravi Zacharias, that's a big name. Others. He says, let this cushion our despair. Let it lift our gaze to the leader of God's elect who does not disappoint, in whom is no sin, and against whom no charges can be brought. We will never find perfection of office except in our Lord Jesus Christ. All of this that we see in these failures, we go, yeah, they're, they're not Jesus. Nor is your past, nor any. There is no Savior. He says, realizing this can save us from cynicism that may come from disappointing servants of Christ. We ought, we ought to look and say, oh, what a tragedy that this happened. But it also reminds us there is one, and they are not it. There is one. I don't often refer to the title of our, the series in Judges. It's at the top of your bulletin every week as we're going through here. It's this little phrase, corrupt hearts, need an incorruptible king. I think we see this going on here in the text. So I want to ask you, as we look to this king, to just ask about your own home, your own heart. Are there any ephods hanging out there? Is there anything ensnaring you from the worship and the rule of God alone in your life? Anything that has just ensnared? Maybe it's not big stuff. It's just little making of this. Even something that can be Christian, that can just mm, take us away from the worship of God Himself. Can I encourage you in that? If we see our own hearts ensnaring us away from the Lord to look to the incorruptible King Jesus Jesus Christ, unlike Gideon, He never failed, nor will He fail. He knew no sin, yet He took on our sin, He took on our corruption on the cross, so that what? In Him we might become the righteousness of God. God's plan to save hearts filled with corruption, like Israel, like ours, is Christ. He knows our hearts. God knows the corruption the call for us is simply to acknowledge with Him, you see it, I see it too. This heart is corrupt. We're being transformed by the work of Him in our lives and we need that, that, that breath of life into us to see our sin and say, I have sin, I need you. But may we confess it to the Lord. I'm ensnared by sin. But then the solution is not to go back. Okay, I see my sin. I will establish my righteousness. I will build better ephods. I will make better promises. That's not the first place. The first place is to run to Jesus Christ. That's where corrupt hearts need to run to. He is the sinless One. The perfect One whose blood covers our sin. He's the true victor over sin. So I encourage you, first off, put your faith in Christ. And it's easily, it's easily to start my faith as in, I will do better tomorrow. And I hope we do. And that's a place to go. My first is, Lord Jesus, You are my Savior. 
You are my victory. You are not corrupt and your righteousness. That's my life. And then from there, we walk how? In faith. We never say, okay, I've got Jesus. Now I'll do that. Now I'll make an ephod. No, take with Jesus. Walk with Him. Put off the entanglements of sin. Get, get rid of the ephods. Get them out wherever they find you. Lord, do I have something? Is there something ensnaring me? And then put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Oh, Lord, thank You that You have not left us to see our sin and not yet at the same time provided a merciful and gracious way out. Were it not for Jesus Christ, we have absolutely zero hope in finishing the race in life eternal, in abundant life, in glorious life, in You. We thank You, Lord Jesus, for Your mercy. May our song be Jesus Christ and Him alone. And Lord, where there are ephods, where there are snares to this rule of You in our lives, root them out in us. By Your grace, Send someone to point it out in our lives that we would not be swayed and driven off course. By Your Spirit, Lord, show us. Show us through Your Word. We thank You for Your Word because it brings us to Christ. It shows us who Christ is. So Lord, lead us to You daily. And Lord, I especially I pray even for the leadership of this church, for Dave and Milt and Brandon and myself, Keep us, Lord, from setting up ephods, from ensnaring Your people to walk away from You and to honor us more than You. Lord, help us. Protect us as a church. Protect the fathers, Lord, in this church that are leading their families. May they be pointers to Christ. And not ensnaring their families, but leading them to You, to Your rule, to to worship of You. We pray this all in the great name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. You've been listening to Bethany Radio, a production of Bethany Bible Church in Leroy, Minnesota.